I'm actually going to introduce Jason Turner. So Jason's going to be um, uh, leading us this morning and sharing some content and speaking. And so I've gotten to know Jason a bit these last couple months. He's the pastor of Christian Faith Fellowship Church. Um, he and his wife have moved down here to plant that church about a year ago in Chandler. And so he's kind of gets to look into the church scene in the East Valley with fresh eyes and fresh lens. And as I've got to spend time with him, he strikes me as a man full of integrity that can teach us a lot and lead us a lot. And so we join me welcoming up Jason up. He's going to lead us this morning through a talk on unity and reconciliation. Thank you. <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. All right. Um, I like sports. And I'm not necessarily a huge baseball fan. Uh, but my grandfather was. My grandfather uh, would sit and watch the Chicago Cubs every time they came on. I'm originally from the Midwest, and so that was the thing that my grandfather and I did. Uh, we didn't uh, often have other things that were similar, uh, but during that one moment, we were able to connect in a way that we couldn't at any other time, <clears throat> and in the beauty of silence, be able to be together. And uh, so I just, I, I began to enjoy watching baseball. My grandfather loved the Chicago Cubs. Uh, he was one of those guys that uh, would support the team no matter how bad they were. And they were pretty bad. <laughs> Until 2016, uh, when they no longer were as bad and they actually won uh, the World Series, which was an incredible thing. But from watching baseball with my grandfather and specifically within the last year, and even into um, a couple nights ago, uh, I found something that was quite uh, astounding regarding the game of baseball. Um, the analysts that would be talking about the game would say this. If you are uh, in a baseball game and you're into the eighth and ninth inning and the game is over, and you're behind by a run, the worst thing that you can do as a batter is to go to the plate and to try to swing for the fences, to hit a home run, to try to put your team either tied or try to allow your team to win. The reason why you don't swing for the fences is because the pitcher knows that that's what you're trying to do. So the pitcher gives you pitches that makes you think it's right down the alley, right where you want it to be, in order to get you to swing so hard that it'll cause you to eventually to strike out. They tell you that the best strategy is a combined strategy that everybody who is in the lineup has to be willing to do uh, something small, do something that's a piece of a greater picture in order to allow the team to win. So when you come to the plate, you would go to the plate and you would be looking to hit a base single, not trying to hit a home run. Uh, the next person coming to the plate would be looking maybe to bunt, having to sacrifice their own stats and their own uh, potential stardom at the moment in order to help to advance the runner from the first base to the second base. The next batter who comes up may come up and do a pop-up sacrifice fly on purpose again, to help advance the runner from one base to the next. It is this mixture and this combination of small things that a collective group does that helps to bring victory to the team. 
The victory that is brought to a team is not because of one person only. It is because of the collective efforts of everyone contributing in a small way. Now, those small things may seem small, but in actuality, they collectively are a very large thing that helps the team to get the win. I don't know about you, but I believe that right now, in the game that we're in, we're behind. We're behind by a run. We're behind as it relates to being the team that's out front that's really speaking to issues and, 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 and ideologies and things dealing with unity. I believe we're behind. I believe we are being reactive instead of proactive. And consequently, there are things that we have to do collectively together. Not one star, not one person, not one preacher, not one pastor, not just one church, but collectively as a community, we all have to be willing to do the small things. And then even bring it to our home. We all have to be willing as an individual person to do the small thing that's necessary to advance the agenda of the kingdom to where we finally, in the end, win. Because what's at stake is not just a game, but what's at stake is the souls of people that God dearly loves. So as we begin to kind of talk about it, unpack this topic of unity, we have got to look further than just what is this one grand thing we can do? Is it a big service we can have? Is it a large gathering we can put together? Is it a march that we can do? Is it some type of parade? We have to look beyond the large thing and consider that great things happen in the midst of small things. God values the small thing. And sometimes in our society, we don't value the small things. We think if it's small, it's insignificant. So we pass it over to the side and we don't consider it. We don't look at it and we don't deal with it. But God, our God, the one that we serve is contrary to that fact. Great things with him are first found in the small things. Let me give you a few examples. In a heartbeat, a small thing is a full life potential. In an acorn, you see a massive tree. In a massive tree, you will then see a forest. In a speck of dust, there are trillions of atoms. In a scar, you can catch a glimpse of someone's history. In a dream, you can find freedom for the disenfranchised and freedom for the disinherited. Zechariah 14 says, don't despise the day of small beginnings. In a mustard seed, you'll find faith to move a mountain. In a widow's two mites, the Bible says, you'll find the greatest of all gifts. The Son of God was born in a manger. A timeless sacrifice was given in a few breaths. Salvation that we receive comes from the smallest prayer. And the gift of eternity that we're looking forward to is going to come in the twinkle of an eye. The greatest things that we can ever desire and hope for and want in our life are a result of something 
that happens first that is small. There is so much that is great that is in the small thing. So you may be asking, hey, that sounds great, but what does it have to do with unity? I'm glad you asked that question. Because what we have to look at today, what I want you to be able to leave here with today is what is it that you can do, not my church, not my group, not my clique, and those are all admirable things, but what is the thing that you can do that is a small thing that helps to bring about great change regarding unity within your community, unity within your church, unity within your world? We find the answer in Matthew, the 22nd chapter, and the 36th verse. Matthew 22 <coughs> and the 36th verse. And it says here, well, I'm going to start at the 34th verse. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, what is the great commandment and the law. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is Jesus speaking to a lawyer who was equipped and well-versed regarding the law. And he was asking Jesus this question, some scholars believe, in order to trip him up. Some scholars believe he was asking this question because he really was looking for the answer. But what we want to focus on for the next few moments is this, what Jesus' answer was and how that impacts unity. Jesus said, out of all of the issues that you guys are dealing with, out of all the issues that you are bringing to me, out of all the issues that are coming up, I'm telling you the answer to all of them is found in these two commandments. Because in Matthew 22, we find Jesus being backed up into a corner. Jesus has been backed up into a corner by three different sects within the Jewish community. Even within the Jewish community, there was disunity, and these three different sects were trying to back Jesus in its corner, trying to get him to uh, 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 trip over his own words, were trying to find a way to get a win against Jesus in order to win people into their corner of their understanding and learning regarding the law. Jesus was encountered by the Herodians, and he dealt with their question. This is all in the 22nd chapter. He dealt with their question and answered it, and they walked away confounded. After the Herodians, the next group that shows up is a group of Sadducees. And they're like, well, the Herodians didn't get Jesus because they're not as smart as we are. We're going to catch Jesus. And they ask Jesus a question, and Jesus answers their question, and the Bible says they left their confounded as well. So the last group that it left were a group of Pharisees, and the Pharisees huddled together. They got together, and they pushed out their star 
the team member, the star of their team, to go against Jesus because they were trying to get Jesus to trip over his word so that they could win. The Sadducees sent to Jesus a lawyer. The lawyer shows up, and the lawyer asks Jesus, Hey, Jesus, of all the commandments, since you're such a great teacher, you're a Rabboni, you're a master teacher, so teach me, Jesus, of all of the great, of all of the commandments, what is the greatest to you? Again, looking to trip Jesus up. And Jesus says, of all the commandments, again, he says, the greatest one is you loving your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything you're trying to do is hanging on these commandments. Everything you're trying to put forth, everything you're trying to do is hanging on these commandments because the law was given to a group of people that God was taking that was disjointed in order to bring them together in order to unify them. The law was letting them know the things that they could do as they were serving God which was a reflection of his love towards them because the law was the boundaries or the parameters that helped to shape a people, that helped to unify a people. These laws should have been used to help bring people together. But in this very same chapter in Matthew 22, we see that these are the very laws that were used by the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees not to bring people together, but to tear people apart to make them not unified. And this was happening in what we call the modern-day church. Instead of finding the commonalities, instead of finding the things that are unifying us in the gospel, we take the gospel to disunify us. We take the gospel to make us separate. We take the gospel to have a sect over here and a sect over here. And how in the world do we expect to win the world when the world looks at us and says, you're not even unified? You won't come together. You won't spend time with each other. Dr. Martin Luther King said the most segregated hour in this country is on Sunday morning. So Jesus had to address it and to deal with it. And he dealt with it by saying, I want you to understand that all of the laws and all of the prophets, so whether you're a Herodian, whether you're a Sadducee, whether you're a Pharisee, all of the laws, all of the prophets, they hang on this one thing. You have to learn how to love. Now, according to the scripture, there are 613 laws. Did y'all hear what I just said? 600. I was coming out here to make sure y'all heard me. 613 laws. That's a lot of laws to try to remember. Surely, 
you're going to mess up one. You're going to forget one. And that's what some of the Herodians and Sadducees and Pharisees were waiting for. They were sitting in the corner with their list of laws that they like, and they were waiting for you to mess up one so they could pounce on you. 613 laws is a lot to try to remember. And all you're trying to do is live for God and love God and, and, and celebrate him and worship him because he's an amazing God. But you've been giving all of these laws. 613 laws. Jesus said, let me help you make this simple. 613 laws. I went to my I went to my closet and I didn't find 613 hangers. So I got a few. There was 600 in my wife's side but she wouldn't have wanted me to take all of her hangers. So I took the 613 laws and broke them down into 10 categories. First, one of the first categories, in no particular order, the laws dealt with priesthood and the tithes. Jesus said all of the laws and the prophets, and again, the prophets' responsibility, main responsibility, was to explain the, the law. They were to explain how the law worked. They were supposed to explain that the law was given by a loving God to a people he was trying to develop because he wanted to walk with them and because he loved them. The laws were not to punish. The laws were designed to bring people into unity and for them to walk in love. But whenever you put something that is righteous in the hands of humanity, we often make the mistake of messing it up and making it more complicated than what it is. So Jesus says, let me help remove the complication. Let me help remove the disunity. Let me help you understand why we have what we have and what the purpose is for. You have 613 laws. You have the prophets that talk about the laws, but their reason for existence, the laws and the prophets, was so that it could be hang on and to describe the love affair that God has with you. Every law has to hang on love. Priesthood and tithes, I don't know if y'all can see that, was one of the first categories of, of, of the laws. But it's got to hang on love. Because Jesus said, all of these laws, all of these prophets have to hang on these commandments. And these two commandments is love. We got to hang on love. So the next area, sacrifices and offerings, it's got to hang on love. The next area that they talked about in the laws were feasts. But it's got to hang on love. The next area was purity laws. But it's got to hang on love. The next area was food laws. The next area were social laws, how you should behave and interact and be with other people. But all of the laws dealing with each other, they don't work if they're not hanging on love. The next thing is moral laws. Your morality is not based upon the convenience of your position, but morality has to be based upon what God's law says, and it has to be given on love. Love has to be what the Ten Commandments hang on. Love has to be what the other uh, portion of the laws were that were looking forward to a time that was to come. And the last area was dealing with the tabernacle and the temple and the altars. These 613 laws, broken down into 10 categories, only work if they are hanging on the rod of love. And the problem that we're having 
in the church, and I can't speak for anywhere else because that's where I am. That's where I was born and raised. That's what I have a love for, and that's what I will die for. The problem that we have is that we are hanging all of our laws, our perceptions, our thoughts, our feelings on positions. We're hanging them on a, 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 a different, different sides that we're siding with, and we're not hanging them on love, and we're missing the point. Everything we're supposed to be doing is supposed to be motivated by love. It's supposed to be covered by love. It's supposed to be dipped in love. Love should be the foundation out of what everything it is that we're doing. And because we don't have love operating properly entirely in the entirety of the the church, it is difficult for us to have unity in the church and to have unity outside of the church. Because again, why would the world come to us when we don't have our act together? So then what is our responsibility as we leave here today? What is our takeaway? What is the thing that I believe God wanted me to share with you that we are supposed to take action to? Because remember, we're trying to do this great thing, but this great thing starts with a small thing. It starts with you. It starts with your decision to decide that starting this day, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to be concerned about what concerns Christ. I am going to love God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, with all of my soul. And because I'm walking in that love, I now have the ability to go love my neighbor. My neighbor is not the one that looks like me and that I'm comfortable with. My neighbor is the one that sometimes, and the majority of the times, doesn't look like me and that I'm not comfortable with. Our love is not seen in what we say because we say a lot of good stuff. Our love is seen in what we do. We say often that, 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 that we are the hands and feet of Christ. So our love is going to be displayed in what we do. It's going to be displayed when you decide to get up from a table that you're comfortable with, with people that you're around, and walk to another table to love on somebody that you don't know, that you've never met, and it's the first time you've walked into a place with them before. Love is saying, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to identify with somebody who doesn't look like me, and I'm going to do it with this end in mind. I'm going to treat them like how I want to be treated. If we could all walk in that type of love, if we can consider the other person that we don't see and consider them in the mindset of God, I want to be treated in a certain way. I would want to be treated with respect. I would want to be treated with dignity. I would want to be treated with love and then to treat people that we don't know, that we don't understand with that same type of understanding Understanding, then I believe we are on the way to seeing a great thing, which is unity first within the body of Christ. And this unity can then spread to the rest of the world. We have to be what is attractive that the world looks at and says they want to run to and find out what do they have to do to be like us. It's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. It's uncomfortable, but it's demanded. It's uncomfortable, but it's what he has called us to do. When's the last time you had dinner with somebody that don't look like you? When's the last time that you've dialogued with somebody who their, their issue is on the national stage 
and you want to dialogue with them because you want to better understand what it means to walk in their shoes and how they see that issue from their perspective. When is the last time that you've gone the extra mile to love somebody beyond what was comfortable? When was the last time you invited somebody over your house for a cup of coffee so that you can love on them? When is the last time that you treated the guy that's on the corner that's holding a sign and that's saying, I need money, and I need food? When was the last time you treated him like you would want somebody to treat you if you were in that same condition? It's easy to close our eyes. It's easy to move on. It's easy to say that doesn't concern me. But the truth of the matter is, is that if you belong to God, it does concern you. Because our God, our Savior, Jesus, is in red letters, said to us that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And then after we do that, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. I've heard before people say, well, how is it that I can love my neighbor as myself if I don't even love myself? And I say to you, the reason sometimes that somebody may not love themselves is because a neighbor hasn't loved them first as they were supposed to love unto themselves. Again, it starts with somebody. Somebody has to say, it, it starts with me, God, today. I'm going to... Do the extra thing. I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to, I'm going to hang all of what I'm pursuing, all of what I'm trying to do. I'm going to hang it on love because if I try to do things for you and in your name and it's not hanging on love, there's nothing for it to hang on and consequently it all falls. And that's where we are in the church. We have fallen issues, fallen conditions, fallen situations because we're not hanging on love. We're hanging on other stuff, and it's not strong enough. Do you understand how strong love is that Jesus says it can handle holding 613 laws and all the prophets? Love is a bad manager. <laughs> Love can handle it. If you read throughout the scriptures, love can do it. Love is what sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins. It was love. It wasn't a church. It wasn't creating a brand that could be sustained to go to the next generation. It was his love for you. That's what motivated him to go to the cross. That's what motivated him to go through that journey. That's what motivated him to stay there. That's what motivated him to go through the excruciating torture and horror and pain because of love. Let me leave you with these last few scriptures and then I'm done. And I hopefully I didn't offend anybody by dropping the law on the floor. <laughs> First Corinthians 13. We heard it before, but I just want to read it. Not going to expound upon it. I just want the word to scream at us right now. 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And we're going to look at the fourth verse. And if you don't have it, I got it. Just close your eyes and listen. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely does not speak its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 
Go down to the 13th verse. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let me take you to one more place, Ephesians, the sixth chapter. We read this a whole lot as we are trying to develop structure within the church and organization. But I want to read it to you through the scope of what it is that we just talked about today. Ephesians, the sixth chapter. And we're going to uh, begin at... uh, Uh, and that ain't what I'm looking for. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and we're going to begin at the first verse. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Somebody say unity. Go to the 14th verse. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind, and I'm finished, of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together but by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And I'm finished. Unity is defined by this, the state of being united or joined as a whole. We've been told unity means that we have to be the same. But according to the word, that's not what unity is. Unity means that our differences, when we sit down at the same table, they make us whole. That's unity. I'm not trying to make you be like me because we're part of one body. I don't need the toenail to be the eyeball. I need the eyeball to be the eyeball and the toenail to protect the toe. So I don't need you to try to be like me. Unity, our pursuit of it, is not trying to make other people be like us. Our pursuit of unity is to love the differences that's across the table. And the fact that we are together brings a growth and a wholeness that causes us to be unified. Father, I pray today that the heart of your word is what resonates with your people today. That we walk out of here today not being entertained or refreshed. But we walk out of here today being changed, being pushed to do the thing that is uncomfortable, that will bring about true unity, that is a true reflection of you in every facet and in every area. God, the church has to have unity because after we get it and we get it right, that's what makes us even more attractive to the world. And the world then wants to be like us. The world wants to know that God. The world wants to give their life to you. Help us to be unified so that you could be lifted up from the earth, that it causes all men to be drawn unto you. Let this change our heart today, and we give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.